Have you ever wanted to work in a flying ICU? Or maybe you're just passionate about saving lives. Right now you can realize your dream by applying to work for one of the best teams in the air medical industry. Air Methods is currently hiring qualified flight nurses, medics, and mechanics to join our air medical team. Check out our new salary and benefits packages. Visit airmethods.com careers and apply today. That's airmethods.com careers. The views, opinions, and positions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. No legal advice is intended in this podcast and no attorney-client relationship is created. We are discussing general legal concepts that may differ depending on the specific facts of your situation, as well as the specific laws and regulations of the state in which you practice. Always consult an attorney who specializes in your state law to determine your rights and responsibilities. And finally, to the extent that it's not already in the public sphere through being published in court documents or news stories, PHI is de-identified. Welcome to the Standard of Care Podcast an engaging look at the medical legal aspects of EMS. Practical insight, real stories, and authentic understanding. Here are your hosts, Samantha Johnson and Nick Adams. So Sam, last week's episode turned out so well, we had our very first uh, special guest. So you've doubled up on me this time. You brought two. I did. I did because I think this is the perfect time to be discussing yet another crazy thing that's going on in our world. Um, obviously, you've seen all of the posts and podcasts about the uh, indictment in the Elijah McLean case. And are you hearing things from your folks about it? Because I know I am. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, you know, kind of rocked our industry. That was the first time that two paramedics were criminally charged. Uh, for what they probably thought was the right thing to do at the time. So just um, shocking. And some of the, the charges that were levied against them sound really scary. And I bet you're going to tell me either they are or they aren't. So that's why I have you and two more attorneys here today. Yeah, it's, I mean, they, they definitely sound bad, right? Because it was manslaughter, it was criminally negligent homicide. But I think my favorite part was where they talked about using ketamine as a deadly weapon. Yeah, And I, I mean, I'm not on a truck and I don't go out and administer meds to folks, thankfully, I'm sure for everybody listening to this podcast, but I know there's a lot more dangerous things that we use than ketamine. Yeah. There's a lot of things that can do worse stuff to a patient. So I know I've heard from folks, the idea that the ketamine is being called a deadly weapon is upsetting. It is. Because there's so much worse things you could do. Yeah. I know we've already talked about it, and it's kind of the current event right now, but let's quickly recap the case we're talking about. We're talking about the Elijah McLean case, who is a gentleman in Aurora, Colorado, who was just walking down the street. If I remember correctly, he was going from the store back to his house, and somebody calls 911 on him. Next thing you know, three police officers are stopping him and... You know, all the details are kind of fuzzy, I think, but eventually the officers are uh, restraining Elijah McLean, uh, do a carotid choke on him, and uh, through the process, eventually they call for Aurora Fire. Aurora Fire shows up, uh, Falk ambulances, ambulance eventually comes as well, and they end up giving Elijah McLean 500 milligrams of ketamine uh, to stop what they were calling at the time excited delirium. And uh, so just recently in the last couple of weeks, um, it was brought down that the, like we said, the two paramedics have been charged criminally in this case. Yeah, this was a long indictment, 32 counts uh, against the police officers and the medics involved. And it, I mean, we talked about that, the whole background of the case in the previous episode, but it was a chaotic scene that just turned into a tragedy. And there's there's no getting around that. You know, I think on the civil side, there's definitely going to be some, uh, some liability handed out to some folks, but on the criminal side, that's a new thing in the EMS world. We, we so rarely ever see folks being charged criminally 
for things that aren't, you know, auto wrecks. Um, so I know I'm at a bit of a loss for how to handle it, but that's why we have our two guests on the podcast tonight. Woohoo! Um, so, so I want our guests to introduce themselves. Um, Chris, I'm going to start with you. Okay. So my name is Chris Timmons. Uh, I'm currently a business litigation lawyer with a, a specialty in racketeering cases, mostly fraud. I'm going to deal with partnership disputes, real estate, et cetera. The reason why I'm here, though, was in a past life, I was a prosecutor for 17 and a half years. Probably most germane to what we're talking about was I was the head of the public integrity unit in the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office, which meant that if a case like this happened in DeKalb County, Georgia, I would have it. So um, I've indicted uh, doctors for doing opioid cases. I've indicted uh, police officers, or actually one particular police officer, which is the Robert Olson case that you may be familiar with because that was a, a police officer who shot a naked veteran. Um, so that's why I'm here. I am pleased to be here, and I am very happy to be talking to paramedics. I hope not to run into you professionally, but if I do, uh, <laughs> do whatever you can to save my life and remember I was on this podcast. There you go. <laughs> so that's how you got him on the podcast, to drive exactly. him, huh? All right. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Stephen, how about you? Good evening, Sam. My name is Stephen Coxon, um, and I actually attended law school with Sam, so that's how I had the pleasure of finding myself on this podcast this evening. But I have spent my career pretty much exclusively in the criminal realm as well. Like Chris, I had experience in the in the prosecution realm. I spent my first three years of my practice working for the Newton County DA's office, uh, prosecuting all manners of crime from traffic violations to murder violations with somewhat of a specialty in felony drug cases. So you know, the fact that this case involves, at least in a tangential way, some, some drug issues is something I have some familiarity with. But for the past 15 years or so, I've been in private practice and have had my own firm and primarily based in Covington, Georgia, where I've done a great deal of criminal defense work, again, running the gambit of everything from defending traffic violations to murder cases. So um, I like to think that I've had a good bit of experience dealing with all manner of defense cases and some experience in prosecution as well. So hopefully I can lend a little a little insight into this case and to your listeners this evening. All right. Well, we're really glad to have you guys here. Um, this is a, a complicated case and one that we hope to unpack a little bit. We, for our listeners, have always tried to simplify the legal system a little bit. So when these indictments come out, I know because I don't practice criminal law on a daily basis other than, you know, the occasional traffic ticket here and there. Um, I look at this and I see this, you know, this multi-page indictment with a lot of scary sounding things in it. And I, I imagine for the folks on the street, that's an even more disturbing things. So well, Sam, let's actually read all yeah. those charges that they got. I don't think we have yet. Oh my God. Um, We're going to link that in the show notes because it is too long to read. We'll be here all night doing that. <laughs> oh yeah. But I, I didn't want to read, but, but they were oh, indicted with manslaughter, ones. criminal mm -hmm. negligent homicide, yep. uh, assault in the second degree and crime of violence. And, and, you know, we'll talk about what all those things mean. And, you know, kind of one of the things I want to know is those sound scary. Are they scary? You know, are they felonies? Are they misdemeanors? How much, how much time in jail are these guys potentially looking at? Well, and toss that to, uh, to our guests to let us know what you think. All right. Steven has got this one. I am sure he is the guy who apparently did homework <laughs> on Colorado uh, I apologize, but I, I'm, I'm strictly Georgia, man. Uh, but he apparently has got a, a friend out in Colorado, and he, he's got this. So uh, take it away with that introduction, throwing him right under the bus or under the ambulance. Stephen, <laughs> go ahead. Thanks, as always, Chris. Um, Chris. So, yeah, Chris is right. One of my – well, my former law partner, a gentleman by the name of Bo Worthington, ironically uh, moved to Colorado last June and is now practicing at a firm in Colorado Springs as primarily a criminal defense attorney in Colorado Springs. And so, of course, when I got the call and the invite to be a part of this podcast, I immediately reached out to Bo to get a little bit of a, a crash course in Colorado law and a little bit of a mini CLE, so to speak. And he did nice. give me a little bit of insight. Um, to answer your question, from what I can gather, all of the counts that the paramedics are facing are unfortunately felonies. Um, oh, wow. And the 
Obviously, the manslaughter and the criminal neg- criminally negligent homicides are clearly the most severe of the charges, um, and they carry you know, probably upwards of 20 plus years in prison, from what I can gather. Oh, my goodness. Um, wow. Now, obviously, a lot of that you know, depends on certain circumstances, but even the assault in the second degree is, I think, akin to what we in Georgia would refer to as aggravated assault. So that's a felony and has some serious penalties attached to it as well. Um, the most interesting thing that I learned from Bo, I think, that kind of differentiates Colorado law a little bit from Georgia law is the crime of violence counts that you referenced earlier in the indictment. Uh, while they are separate counts in the indictment and do have to be proven just like any other crime in the indictment beyond a reasonable doubt, what their purpose apparently is, is to basically enhance punishment. Um, if those counts are proven beyond reasonable doubt to a jury, then it kind of increases the authority that the judge might have in sentencing these men um, and sentencing them more harshly with stronger penalties than what they would otherwise face if those crime of violence charges were not attached to the indictment. So I think that's an important note to consider as well. But their bottom line, they're all definitely serious and they are scary and they are things to be taken incredibly seriously. So was the book thrown at them? Is this, I mean, are they just throwing everything they can at these paramedics? Um, you know, it's funny you ask that way. I, I wouldn't necessarily say the book was thrown at them because I mean, manslaughter and criminally, criminally negligent homicide are not the most severe charges, obviously, that one could face um, if a death ensued uh, from what is alleged to be criminal conduct. But under these circumstances, they're probably the most severe charges that could reasonably be even expected to possibly be proven. But what I took from the indictment, and Chris, you can chime in and tell me if you agree, is that a lot of these counts are what I would refer to as alternative counts, uh, meaning that that basically they have charged the same conduct in a variety of different ways to give the state and the prosecution a lot of different ways to, to prove these guys guilty of something. Um, hmm. And even if they were proven guilty by a, to a jury satisfaction of all these charges, I'm almost certain that many of them would merge, meaning that if it came down to sentencing, they wouldn't face, for example, you know, 20 years per count necessarily, because a lot of these would merge, um, given the fact that they're alleging the same conduct, but just in a different way. Um, so I think they definitely covered their bases, but I wouldn't necessarily say they're throwing the book at them because I think they just really you know, found a lot of different ways to say the same same thing criminally. And a, and a follow-up question to that right quick is, uh, would they were they throwing uh, more severe charges at them, hoping that they would plea down to something less? Is that is that a possibility, I guess? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, and I'll tell you, I, there are folks that have different theories. I think that's unethical, uh, to be honest. I mean, I, I know it happens. Um, I, the most classic example is you've got a case that would fit under death penalty standards, uh, you, you have no intention of bringing it as a death penalty case, but she threatened the other side with a death penalty to get them to plead with life without parole. And I don't think that's ethical. Uh, you know, I don't know. Sometimes you, you do load up the charges, but you really shouldn't be charging something that you don't believe in. Matter of fact, you have an ethical duty as a prosecutor. Uh, a lot of folks don't know that, but uh, every lawyer is subject to a code of ethics prosecutors have not only that code of ethics that they have to follow, but also a separate code of ethics that applies only to prosecutors. One of the provisions in that is that you cannot proceed on a case without probable cause, uh, which is interesting because that's come up in the police officer shooting cases. You hear people say, well, the officer shot the guy. Why don't we just, you know, indict him and let the jury figure out whether it's a murder or not. And that would actually be unethical on behalf of a, a prosecutor to take a case like that um, to grand jury or to trial without probable cause. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out here in the paramedic circle, um, because, you know, the prosecutors that handled this, if they did not believe that they had probable cause that these paramedics committed the crimes that they're charged with, they would be engaged in their own ethical conduct and, and could potentially be disbarred. I don't think it's going to go that far. I'm sure in their heart of hearts, they think that they're doing the right thing, uh, but that's something to keep in mind. So yeah, the question getting back, you know, is it, is it, are you going to overcharge a case hoping to force a plea? Uh, I, I would hope in this day and age that that doesn't happen anymore. It's possible. I would think probably not as much in this case, though, because it's, it's getting so much public scrutiny. I mean, you're, you're and, and I've had 
you know, cases where you're in the national eye and it's, it's, you know, you, you really got to watch what you're dealing, or at least I had one case anyway, that had the, the police officer shooting case I talked about before got international press. And it's, wow. you know, you, you, you know, that your homework's going to be graded by, and everyone in the entire world is going to have an opinion <laughs> about what you're doing. So you, you, you got to make sure you do it right. Somebody in Georgia is going to have a podcast talking about your case is what I'm hearing. Exactly. <laughs> some, some idiot former prosecutor is going to be talking about all the stuff he did wrong. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Sam, so, can you and Chris kind of walk us through that whole uh, process of of how did the prosecutor determine to file these charges? Because yeah. previously they had declined to file those charges. Is that correct? Yeah, this is interesting because the original prosecutor, the county prosecutor, said that we don't have a basis for filing charges. And then because of the outcry about this case, the governor appointed an independent counsel who then convened a grand jury. So Chris, for you as a former prosecutor, how do prosecutors even determine whether charges are warranted? And and basically, how does it come across your desk? And how do you decide to move forward or not with it? Okay, so there's there's the typical case, and then there's the case like this, um, in your, in your t- where you've got immense public scrutiny, and you know uh, uh, it's going to be left up to the prosecutor to make a decision because there's just too much pressure on a law enforcement agency to make that call, um, and so and that's more like a police officer shooting in Georgia. It's it's rare to see a warrant taken out by uh, anybody other than the, the prosecutors, which which is unheard of, you know, in any other case. But typically, the way a usual criminal case begins is a police officer sees criminal conduct. They make an arrest. They then go to a judge and they apply for an arrest warrant. And then the warrant gets to the prosecutor who evaluates the case, gets the evidence together, reads the police report. In a drug case, we'll make sure that the the item that they thought was drugs was actually drugs. Sometimes it isn't. You just don't know. Uh, It's both your unlucky and lucky day that you spent a hundred bucks for something you thought was cocaine turned out to be powder. But the good news is you're not going to prison. Uh, So, you know, so the, uh, so then the prosecutor gets the case, they make the charging decision, they decide what charges they're going to bring. Uh, a lot of cases are, so they're, they're handled in different states, it's called different things. In some states, it's referred to as an information. In the state of Georgia, it's referred to an accusation. And that just means the prosecutor sees the, the case, it's already been looked at by a judge, the person's bonded out, we don't need to get the grand jury involved, you just draft up the document, sign it, send it off, and it gets prosecuted. The more serious cases are handled by a grand jury. So like an armed robbery or a murder case has always got to go to a grand jury. And so what happens there is the prosecutor draws up the indictment, they write it, they then send it off to the grand jury, it gets presented to them, they have a mini trial. And, and I'll tell you, I've done some in three minutes. So it's a real mini trial. Just oh. kind of, if it's not hard, it's not hard. You know, officer, what'd you see? Guy had cocaine in his pocket. Was it cocaine? Yes. All right. Rested, same. Let's go. Um, you know, you don't, you need to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, other cases, um, for example, the Olson case that I, I talked about before, we, we spent an entire day before the grand jury. Uh, on the federal level, they have investigative grand juries that, that can go months. I've actually worked at a special purpose grand jury where they didn't meet every day, but they met weekly for 18 months um, before we ended the investigation. So um, that's how that happened. Now, this case that we're talking about here is going to be handled a little bit differently. And in the, in the state of Georgia, there are actually three different types of juries, uh, actually four really, uh, but you've got your pettit jury, which is your standard, you know, 12 of your peers who are gonna make a decision on guilt or innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. Then you've what's got called just, I, I don't know if we wanna call it the regular grand jury or just the grand jury. And so you've got the grand jury, which is your typical criminal grand jury. They'll meet once or twice a week and all of the cases, all the criminal cases, all the felony cases that need to be indicted for some reason, it's a certain type of crime that has to be indicted, where the person hasn't bonded out yet. So they'll, they'll hear those cases and they will make a determination as to whether or not the case goes forward. Now, the biggest difference between a pettit jury or your 12 person regular jury and your grand jury is the level of proof required. At a pettit jury, a conviction requires beyond a reasonable doubt. For a case to leave the grand jury, it's gotta be probable cause. So it's a much lower standard. More likely than not is, is the best way to explain it. A grand jury is also larger. Um, a grand jury in the state of Georgia usually is between 18 and 22 people. Also, the grand jury doesn't have to be unanimous. Your 12-person your jury does have to be unanimous. Uh, your, your grand jury, I forget what the numbers are. I think you have to have at least 16 um, out of the 22 that make a decision that the case needs to go forward. Okay, so you've got those two types of grand juries. And I guess there aren't four, there are three. 
Then there's this other type of grand jury, which is a special purpose grand jury. They are unusual, and that is an investigative grand jury. So your typical regular grand jury has a set term. Um, you know, they're going to go for a month or two months. It, it, it lines up with whatever the term of court is in the state. And you know, the bigger the, the county, the shorter the term of court. So in, in Cobb, Fulton, DeKalb, you've got two months term of court, meaning if you're on a grand jury in any one of those counties, you're going to meet once or twice a week for two months. Um, if you're on a special purpose grand jury and you, you get the luxury of doing that, uh, you could be indefinitely on there. I, the longest one I think was the one that I handled was 18 months. And we met once, once a month to handle that. So, and I know this is a really long explanation and, and I'm sorry for that. Um, but in, in, uh, in police officer cases, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised that this case might be one where, so you've got, the regular grand jury, but they've got civil investigative powers, and that sort of came down with the latest um, incarnation of the, the statute that changed with regard to indicting police officers. There was some give and take between the police officer union and what different folks wanted to see. So uh, what we did was go to the grand jury without an indictment, so they don't have charges pending, and we bring the case to them and say, you know, what say you with regard to this case? And so um, we'd ask them, do you, do you think we need to keep investigating or which is sort of a, yeah, y'all need to indict this, or do you think we ought to let this go, which is, is, you know, the flip side of that, which is no, don't go forward. And I, I think a lot of that, um, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement um, in some ways kind of pulled the, particularly the St. Louis case, kind of, kind of removed some of the, I guess, the, the blinds behind the grand jury process. Um, you know, a, a, one of the things that prosecutors used to do is it's like, well, I've got a, I've got a victim who doesn't understand why this case should go forward. I don't want him in my boss's office complaining and saying that I should take this case forward. I'm just going to throw it to the grand jury, tell them not to indict and see what they do. And so then you've got a nice no bill from the grand jury. You go to the victim and say, look, I tried, man, but you know, grand jury doesn't want to go forward. Sucker's dead. You know, like, yeah. so I, I think in the past that, and, and that's one of the things that's in the Georgia statute is if the charges don't go forward, the general public gets to see the transcript of everything that went before the grand jury to make sure that the didn't that the prosecutor didn't take a knee, that the prosecutor didn't go in and say, hey, look, here's all this evidence, but we really don't think y'all need to indict this case. So it puts more of the ball in the in the uh, court of the prosecutor, which are, it belongs in the first place. I mean, if it's your case, have the guts to make a decision as to whether there's probable cause or not. So that is an entire semester of criminal procedure in about <laughs> four minutes. And I am sorry I droned on. Uh, no, no that's <laughs> excellent. So l let me ask this because you, you talked about the prosecutors presenting evidence to the grand jury. Two questions. One, how do you get stuck on a grand jury? You know, most of us know how we get stuck on regular civil jury duty, but uh, how do you come to serve on a grand jury? And then secondly, what kind of evidence are you presenting to that? Okay, so that's that's a great question. And, and I forgot, another major difference between grand jury and a pettit uh, jury is there isn't a criminal defense attorney present during the grand jury. So the grand jury is only going to hear one side of the story. Hmm. Um, that said, is, you know, when, when, I, when we talked about those investigative grand juries, you sort of have one prosecutor playing the de facto defense attorney. You want them to see everything. You want them to see the good and the bad. Um, so you're going to show them everything. And not that you don't show them everything in the grand jury as well. Sometimes, I mean, you know, you, you don't want a case to come out of grand jury that's a bad case. If it's a bad case, better to have it die at grand jury than, you know, than to go forward and you'd be stuck with it. So getting back to Sam's question, which is how can you be this unlucky sucker that's got to give up two days a week for two months uh, from your job and for the grand total of 25 bucks a day, uh, the same way as a regular grand ju regular jury summons. So should you get a summons in the mail, read the fine print to find out whether you're on a pettit jury or whether you're on a grand jury. And, and, uh, and it's kind of fun. I like going before the, or did when I was a prosecutor, like going before the grand jury because, you know, it's just, they, they build this bond camaraderie. They see a lot of stuff, but I, I think it's possible for them to get cynical as well because they see all the really bad cases that are happening in their community. I guess they learn like, don't go to this particular street because it's a really bad idea because a lot of crime happens here. Um, so I guess it's useful from, from that standpoint, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the same way as everybody else. And how does evidence get presented? I'll answer the yes. second question too. It's whatever the prosecutors present, but at the same time, the grand jurors can ask questions. So unlike a, well, I guess even a regular 
jury can, they're not often told they can, and it's unusual for them to ask questions, but grand jurors can ask questions of the witness while the case is up. So, you know, typically it's going to be, now in a case like the case we're talking about, I guarantee they did not just bring one witness into that grand jury in Colorado. There's no way. They, they probably had a mini trial, um, which is what we did when we presented the Olson case. And actually, the interesting thing about the Olson case is because it was a police officer in Georgia the defense attorneys were allowed to be present during the presentation of the case, which is sort of interesting. That's now changed. Um, but yeah, so you're, you're getting your homework graded by your opponent right there, um, which, which is kind of wild. Uh, but, you know, so your typical grand jury case is not long. Um, you know, you've, you've got one witness. And, that, and that's on the state level, too, because the federal level is a, is a whole other thing. State level, typically not a court reporter there, except, again, like in police officer cases, which are completely different. Federal level, always a court reporter there, and they're taking down everything that's being said. So uh, in some ways, on a, on a small case in the state level, the, the grand jury is pro forma. I wouldn't say ham sandwich. Actually, when I was a prosecutor, one of the last things I wanted was an indictment that said state versus ham sandwich, and I wanted them to have a no bill on it to show that you actually couldn't indict a ham sandwich. Uh, but it's, it's, there's, there's, a lot of them are no-brainers. You know, walk in, this is what happened. The guy had Coke in his pocket. What else do you want to do? Here's the crime lab. says it was Coke. I mean, you know, and you don't get into the constitutional issues like you do in a regular courtroom was, was the search bad? Uh, in this case, I think one of the issues that people were looking at was, was that an okay stop? A Terry stop. Were the police officers actually entitled to stop Mr. McLean, or should they have let him go on his merry way rather than, you know, stopping him? Those are issues that I think some grand jurors ask questions about, uh, but we tell them, look, this is not. That's that's going to be decided by a judge, and that's going to be decided on briefing. And, and folks that have got the, uh, you know, they understand the law. Now is not the time to figure that out. And that's the same thing in a regular jury. They don't decide constitutional issues. Now, what's weird is in this case they actually may. Um, because they've got to, they, they may have to decide whether this is a good stop or not. So that, yeah. that's, that's unusual. And a drug case that goes to trial, that's not going to happen. The jury doesn't get to, you know, make a decision on, well, I mean, I know it was Coke and it was in his pocket, but I thought that was a bad search. Therefore, I'm, I'm going to refuse to convict. And no, that's, I mean, sometimes that happens. There is such a thing as jury nullification, but uh, they shouldn't be doing that. So that stuff would get generally dealt with before a case even was presented to the jury evidence is suppressed, you know, I mean, I've watched a lot of law and order. I know how this So, goes. okay, um, indictment first, then you, go to the, then you go to the courtroom. And what y'all okay. don't see is, and one of the things I like to say is a good trial line prosecutor dismisses more cases in a year than a great def criminal defense attorney will have acquittals in their entire career. Um, so that, that's some of the job of you know, most, most bad cases die in the street by the police officers look at it and decide, you know what, this, this doesn't deserve to be an arrest. The next level in that is the prosecutor who's, you know, looking at their stack of 200 cases and deciding, so I'm not going to pursue that one because it, it is a bad search issue here. There's, you know, there, there's problems with it. And, and good prosecutors as well, not only dismiss the case, but also call the police officer and explain why. Okay, here was the problem with your search. You know, obviously we're not going to give the drugs back, uh, but, you know, next time you are uh, doing your search or whatever, you, you need to be aware of this particular case. And we, we might send them cases for them to read so that they understand because police officers want to go do a good job. I mean, they, you know, they, they don't enjoy making an arrest and, and uh, watching the charges disappear because of some procedural defect on their part. Wow. It's like real time quality assurance. Yeah. So Nick and I both do quality assurance for our agencies and, you know, we'll go over medics charts and that kind of thing and say, you know, what did you do? Well, what did you do? What could you do better next time? And um, it's nice to see that that process also works for our frontline police officers too. Um, so once all this evidence is presented, once the grand jury's had a, a chance to, sort of at least get a preview of the case um, and maybe a, a mini trial as well. What happens then? There, this indictment came out of this process. So what, sure. what can we expect to happen next? Well, and I think I gave a lot of short shrift to what happens even before it gets to grand jury. Um, and, and with these types of cases, the vast majority of work is done before you get to a grand jury. I, in a high profile case like this, and for better or worse, I had a ton of high profile cases when I was in the cab DA's office. I used to joke that I couldn't go to court without a camera following me. Uh, and so, you know, and when you're under that microscope, you, you, you make, you know, a, a drug case, like a, a little bit of cocaine in somebody's pocket. I'm, I, I'm sure it's incredibly important to the person whose pocket it's in, but from a prosecution standpoint, it's, you know, it's, that's, that's another case on, on the, on the, on the, you know, on your stack. 
But when it comes to a case like this, there's going to be, I mean, it's, it's not an accident that it was two years since that, uh, you know, since, since the, the, I don't know, crime, whatever you want to call it, occurred and the time that the indictment came down, because a lot of that time you've got folks talking about it, you know, trying to decide, trying to figure out what charges are going to be brought. I mean, because it, it's, the, it's the prosecutors that pick the charges. The grand jury doesn't draft the indictment. The prosecutors do first, and then it's brought. So in a case like this, it really is a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And I'll tell you something else to, to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit as well. That decision's not going to get made by a regular trial line prosecutor or even a specialist or even a specialist who's pretty high up. I mean, they're, they're going to be consulted. And when I was in my cases, I mean, they were, they're, you know, having high profile cases, any single one of which could, could cause my boss to lose an election. Um, you know, you're in their office quite a bit and running the, the case past them, and, and they are going to make the decision on whether the case goes forward. So in this particular case, I am sure that the attorney general made the call, I believe, to mail attorney general, so himself. Yeah. Um, in that particular case. So, yeah. Okay. Now getting back to your question, once you've, you know, you've, you've gone through all the investigation, once you've decided your office decided, multiple people have looked at it and decided we need the case to go forward. Then you make the determination, okay, what charges do we think are appropriate here? What charges should we add? What charges should we subtract? And you're even thinking about, okay, how am I, how am I going to deal with this when I get to trial with a regular jury, not just getting through the grand jury, but how is this, this indictment going to play? Because at the end of the day, that's what the, the jurors have, and that's what they're going to make a decision on is each of the counts. Everybody suddenly becomes an English professor when they get back in the jury room. They're pulling out you know, dictionaries. <laughs> what does this word mean? And then they send questions back to the judge, asking what various words mean. So you, you've got to be really careful. Uh, I'll tell you what. What was interesting about this indictment when I looked at it was the narrative. Um, they have this long narrative before they even get to the first charge. That is highly unusual. Um, you know, we, we've done that in some of our RICO cases, uh, but usually why you do that is because you've got a duty as a prosecutor not to talk to the press. So you let your indictment speak for you. So <laughs> you this, is the, this is like the press release, I guess. It, huh? It's totally a press. We even refer yeah. to our beginning of our RICO case as our press release. I mean, even yeah. though it's not, and it, it gets read to a jury, and there's there's nothing procedurally wrong with it. It's just usually before you get to an indictment, you don't spend hours crafting you know, this, this several-page-long explanation of what happened. What happened, it's, yeah. Yeah, usually your typical indictment uh, is going to be a series of charges, each of which may be a paragraph long with just the bare bones of what's in there. Because again, normally when you're in a prosecution, you don't want to be tied down. Like Steven said earlier, you've got multiple charges because you might have you know, different areas of proof. Yeah. If, and the less you put into the indictment, the more wiggle room you've got if your case turns out differently. On this one though, they are locked in. Um, but again, the upside of that is, you know, criminal defense attorneys don't always have the same restrictions, at least until there's a gag order. So the, the criminal defense attorneys in this case can talk to the press all day long. All day long. The prosecution can't. They've, they've got a point to the indictment, and that's, that's one of the reasons why they did that. So with that 10-minute long wind-up to Sam's <laughs> question, what happens afterwards? All right. So yeah. then the next step in the process is an arraignment. Um, and typically what a lot of times that's waived by criminal defense attorneys, they send in it, they don't want to waste their time going to court. So they just send in a document that says we waive arraignment. In this case, there's no way arraignment's going to be waived. Um, and, and that's unusual. In most cases that are accepted, maybe a murder case, almost all of them, the, the arraignment's going to be waived. So there will be a formal arraignment. The charges will be read. Uh, the, the defendants in the case will be um, you know, brought in, they'll have an opportunity to enter a plea. Oh, I forgot. I, there may be one additional step here. Normally, there's an arrest that's done before the indictment comes down. It's, you know, first arrest, warrant, indictment is the way that that kind of works out. In a case like this, where a grand jury, I don't believe anybody was arrested ahead of time. So what will happen is the indictment comes down, you go to a judge at that point, and then there are arrest warrants and bonds set for the defendants in the case, and then they get arrested on that grand jury warrant. Okay, so once we get through that process, then you get to arraignment, you know, charges are read, they enter their plea, guilty, not guilty. Almost nobody pleads guilty, except maybe on a misdemeanor or a traffic charge at an arraignment. They're, they're all going to plead not guilty. And when they do that, then that begins the, the process of discovery. You know, everybody's got to show their cards. What's the evidence in the case? It goes out. Um, there'll be motions filed, probably motions to suppress. Um, where they'll say that, you know, maybe some evidence that was collected was improperly collected. I think that'd be a little more difficult in this case. You're talking about body cam. It's difficult to say that, you know, the police officer knows that they're, they're not in a, and plus it's taking a, a place out in public. So I think it would be unusual uh, for that to happen. 
uh, but there may be some other motions. I, I don't know in this. So um, Daubert is, I, I don't know if those, I, I've never done one in the criminal area. I think they may be done federally, but Daubert is a case that talks about whether expert testimony is admissible. Um, and I don't know if that's that's a, a, a available in Colorado as a pretrial motion um, to maybe bring a Daubert motion saying, you know, once everybody releases what their expert's going to say, you know, you might say, hey, your expert's unreliable and here's what I've got. I, I thought that was one interesting thing when I was reading the uh, the press on this is I, at least one medical examiner um, said that they did not believe that the ketamine was the cause of death. Okay, that's well, right. if that's the case, man, eh, reasonable doubt right there. Uh, right. You, you, you don't go forward. I mean, in order, you, you can't have a murder where the murder weapon wasn't the cause of death. Um, you know, it's, it's, it just doesn't happen. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, yeah, something bad happened to this person, but if it's not the cause of death, not a murder. Uh, so I, I, yeah, that's, there might be some issues here. Um, I, but I, I, it's going to be a battle of experts at the end of the day, just looking at this from the outside. And one of the biggest issues, and I, I'm sorry, I'm stepping on Stephen's case, but I mean, the issue I see from the outside, or Stephen, Stephen's part of the podcast, he'll get to talk eventually, Stephen, I, I promise. I, I, once I get to the hour mark, um, and by the way, if you guys see the PowerPoint, can you put that up as well? Um, I talk way too much. I was voted most talkative in my high school class, so I came, came, uh, came with it. And yeah, just two questions for you. And I'm going to limit you to like two minutes each. I guess I'm going to have to do that. But um, one of the things that was brought up was when that when and I'm backing up a little bit, but when it comes out of the grand jury, are you bound as a prosecutor? You have to take that case forward. No, no. OK. And that, I mean, wow. in the probable cause because cases change. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. you might look great at grand jury, but, you know, you, somebody brings the videotape of their client at a gas station, you know, two states over at the time of the murder charge. Just because the grand jury indicted the murder doesn't mean you go forward. No, you just yeah. miss that. And I think you already covered it. But what's what do you think is a bit from a prosecutor's perspective? What's the biggest problem that you see with this case or, or what what are, yeah, what are you I, concerned about? Proximate cause. I mean, I'm yeah. just looking at it from the outside. Um, proximate cause means that the injury is the, or what the action that the person took is the reason for the death. It's, it's what caused it. Um, and so here, I think that's the big, that's, that's what I just kind of jumped out at me on this. I'll tell you the second thing, uh, and maybe it even is bigger than the first one is jury nullification is a thing. Um, jury nullification is when, you know, look, the person is guilty of sin. The evidence matches up with the crime. This is a slam dunk. But you get jurors who will tell you, I just don't think that should be a crime. Yeah. Um, and, and in the police officer cases, it, it was a, a pretty big concern. It, it's particularly interesting when we would put those before grand juries. Uh, the breakdown would, would often be racial and also age. I mean, you know, if you, you take a, a white woman in, in her 80s, like my mother, um, you know, she thinks that if you, you know, don't do immediately what the police officer says, no matter how ridiculous what the police officer says, police officer gets to shoot you. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the, the background. And like, so trying to explain to my mom, no, mother, that's not the law is different. Whereas if you've got somebody younger, um, they understand uh, maybe a little bit different. And, and so a lot of it, happen. So, I mean, if they draw a jury of really conservative folks or, or a bunch of older folks, it would typically be great for you in a murder case. Uh, they're going to be terrible in this case. They, they, there's no way they're going to, you know, uh, pass judgment on a, on a paramedic, not, yeah. not any these are folks who, this is the way society ought to work and we want to protect paramedics. And so I think, I think, it's, I think jury selection is going to be the biggest thing in this case. Wow. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. All right, Stephen. It's it's time. I need your help. All <laughs> We've right. been indicted. We need someone to defend us. What are you going to yeah. do? Well, I, I guess I'll piggyback on a lot of what Chris said as far as what I think as a defense attorney I would hone in on and what I do think are the, the difficulties the state's going to have. I agree that cause of death is a big deal. Chris hit on it already, but it seems that there are multiple experts with multiple opinions as to whether or not you know, ketamine was in fact... A, a contributor factor, if if not the cause of death in this case, and that's something the state's going to prove for a lot of these counts, not just the manslaughter and the negligent homicide count, but obviously one of the assault and second degree counts, um, as Sam already pointed to earlier, alleges that they assaulted this gentleman with ketamine and describes it as a deadly weapon. So they've got to be able to show that you know, the assault that he suffer, suffered, the bo serious bodily injury that he suffered was in fact a product of him having been administered ketamine and not a product of what the police officers did to him. And that's yeah. another element of this. So I think that cause of death is a big issue. 
um, for the state. I think the requisite level of intent the state's going to have to prove on behalf of the paramedics is going to be a big problem for them. Um, most of these counts, if not all of them, require that the state prove that the paramedics acted either recklessly, and that's there's mm-hmm. a specific criminal definition of what reckless conduct is, um, or acted with criminal negligence, which also involves a, a specific legal definition of what constitutes criminal negligence. So they've got to be able to prove that, and, it, and especially the criminal negligence part from what research I've done kind of hinges on what a reasonable person would do in that situation, what, you know, given the standard of care that these paramedics have. So there's probably right. going to be experts that are going to have to be brought in on behalf of the state to prove that these paramedics you know, violated the reasonable standard of care in a situation like this and did act in a negligent manner criminally. Whereas the defense is going to have experts, I'm sure on their side, they're going to be able to say no. Under these circumstances, a paramedic was very you know, was acting reasonably imprudent in these circumstances. So they're going to have to prove right. you know, a, a level of intent that I think is going to be very, very difficult um, you know, for the state. So those are the two big things that jumped out to me. And the other thing that Chris kind of hit on is, I think, in a different way, the jury composition is going to be really big for the state here and for the defense because of just the political climate. I mean, I agree that jury nullification is a thing, but given the political climate, a lot of what Chris talked about with regards to people's feelings about law enforcement have changed a great deal in the past Mm -hmm. two years since this occurred. And so I think the defense is going to do a really good job or hopefully is going to try to do a really good job of separating themselves from the police officers, frankly, and pointing the finger at the police officers and saying, hey, the police did this. These are the bad actors. You've seen what the police have done on the news over and over again in the past two years. This is just another example of that. We didn't have anything to do with it. We as the paramedics simply came in, did our job, tried to help this guy, tried to help the police, but we had nothing to do with what they did. So don't hold us responsible. And I think that's going to be a big problem for the state because, like Chris said, most of these jurors, it's going to be a difficult sell to get jurors to lump paramedics in with police officers who are going to be put cast in a really bad light, in my opinion, given their conduct in this case, um, and expect a jury to convict these paramedics for essentially the same conduct they're going to be convicting the police officers for. So those are, I think, the biggest hurdles the state has and the things that I would really hone in on as a defense attorney. Um, But on the flip side of that, it's interesting what Chris said about jury composition, um, because I think that it's, you're going to have to try really hard, you know, to avoid being lumped in with the police as a paramedic defense attorney, because I think that's something, you know, that that's going to be easy to fall prey to is if the jury does, say, hey, they're, they're working with the police. They weren't doing their job. They weren't being autonomous. They weren't being objective. They're basically just doing what the police told them to do. Then, you know, there is a risk of conviction there just based on perception. Would you try to sever? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, that's an excellent question. Stephen, yeah, answer you know, Chris's question. I, 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 I'll, I'll ask you two things, Stephen. I'll take over. Uh, first, what is severance? And second, uh, would you would you try to sever your clients out if you represented the paramedics? Um, so severance is, in Georgia at least, and I'm sure that Colorado has a similar procedure, you can bring a motion to sever the defendants, or in some cases even sever counts, in front of a jury so that you're not lumped in with the police officers. You're tried separately mm-hmm. from the police officers as the paramedics. And so the jury would only hear evidence as it relates really to what you as the paramedic did or did not do. Um, Obviously, the court's given a lot of discretion. The trial court and the judge is given a lot of discretion as to whether or not they would sever defendants and order separate trials. Judges are big fans of what we call judicial economy, which put plainly means we want to save time and taxpayer money. And so we don't want to have two trials if we don't have to. And so oftentimes it's difficult to get a judge to sever, you know, defendants and have separate trials like this, but to answer Chris's question, yeah, I absolutely would. Um, I definitely would try to try to sever the, the case. And, and if I was representing these guys, you know, have the jury only hear our side of it because we can separate ourselves from the police officers because the police officers are the ones that really, I think, have the, the worst look, so to speak, from the facts in this case. Yeah, not, to say that, not to say there's not problems on the paramedic side because there are, but I think the problems, problems on the paramedic side are a lot less 
pronounced than the problems that officers have. Yeah, that was something when we discussed the civil case that we talked about. And I thought it was interesting that you brought up the standard of care because when we when we talked about the civil case and we've done in probably just about every episode we've talked about on this on this podcast, we talked about the standard of what the reasonable paramedic does in the same or similar circumstances. And so for for our listeners, is is the expert testimony the same as it would be in a civil case in that respect with just a different burden of proof? Is it how does it work differently with criminal cases than civil? I mean, as far as the expert testimony on that particular issue, I think it probably would be the same. I think, you know, you're hit the nail on the head that the, the, the big differentiating factor is the burden of proof. Um, obviously, in the, the civil suit, they have to just prove beyond, by preponderance of the evidence, like Chris said earlier, more likely than not, basically, that they were negligent, um, that they you know, act, acted outside the standard of care, whereas criminally, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a gross deviation from the standard of care is basically the way it's defined hmm. in criminal. That's the way basically the Colorado code defines criminal negligence. And I don't want to get into the legal weeds necessarily with your listeners, but paraphrasing, it basically says that someone acts with criminal negligence when they act with a gross deviation from the standard of care of a reasonable person in a like situation. So I think that the burden of proof is definitely different, but you know, expert testimony as to what that standard of care is, I would assume be relatively similar. Um, hmm. Chris, you making way in on that with your thoughts, but I, I think the, I mean, my only thought is, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about the bottom of the barrel paramedic here is what they're sort of talking about. I mean, you know, don't, if you show up drunk to work and for some reason, somebody lets you administer something, you may have a problem uh, beyond that. I think it would be, you know, uh, unusual um, situations. Yeah, right. I think they'd have a hard time proving that in this case because while the dosing was off, it was just barely off, and it's and it's um, you guys probably saw the indictment where they're talking about you know he was 173 pounds and I guess that he was 200 you know on the scene that's in winter that's not yeah I mean you can't you don't have a scale you got to kind of just estimate it on stuff like that so I think they'd have a hard time proving gross negligence in that point sure. So, Stephen, let me ask you this. When a client comes to your office and says, I'm expecting to be indicted for these things, here's here's what happened to me. Here's my side of the story. What's what's the intake process like for you, for, for a client who comes to you with this sort of problem? Sure. Well, I mean, I think... We've all heard the term probably attorney and counselor at law. And until you, in my opinion, practice criminal defense law or family law or something of that type where you know, people are unfortunately dealing with the most traumatic and serious and just stressful times in their entire life, it doesn't really become real. But it is a real thing. I mean, part of our job, a big part of my job, isn't just advising people on the law. It's basically helping them you know, manage the emotional toil, toil and, and impact this is having on their lives. So the first thing I try to do is, as best I can, reassure them, explain the process, let them know that, you know, while this is obviously very serious and obviously we need to take it seriously and prepare as best we can, it's not the end of the world. You know, we have lots of ways we can defend against something like this, lots of you know, avenues available to us that will hopefully result in a positive outcome. But just try to reassure them as best you can, but at the same time, not give them you know, false hope and expectation, give them, you know, really advise them of what the reality of the situation is, what, you know, what they're facing and what they need to do to prepare themselves. But if someone came in expecting an indictment, like you said, but one had not actually come down yet, they had not officially been indicted. Chris may laugh at this, but the first thing I'd tell them is don't talk to anybody associated with law enforcement. Um, oh, I agree. Uh, <laughs> so because they, given that advice too. Yeah, they, they, they would likely, if they're expecting an indictment, that probably means that there's going to be some type of yeah, internal affairs investigation if they're associated with you know, law enforcement or some type of just internal investigation of some sort from whatever agency or agency they're affiliated with. Probably be people you know, from the sheriff's department, police department, investigators that want to talk to them. And I would just tell them they need to respectfully decline that and refer all questions to me and let me filter all that and handle all that and determine what, if anything, we need to say to law enforcement. Um, but other than that, you know, the other big thing I like to know is this may sound commonsensical, but I like to know everything. And you'd be surprised at 
how few times I get all the facts from you know, potential clients. Um, I, I tell people all the time, you know, I can't help you or can't be as effective as I possibly can be if I don't know everything there is to know. And that means the good, the bad, and the ugly, all the good facts, all the bad facts, all that there possibly could be that, so I can prepare myself and know how to you know, deal with that if and when it comes up in a courtroom. You know, sadly, a lot of potential clients or clients think, oh, well, there's no way the police are going to find out about this, that, or the other. So I don't need to tell my attorney about it. They might even be embarrassed, you know, whatever the case might be, but I want to know everything. And that not all attorneys feel that way. Some defense attorneys have to take the position. They don't really want to know if their client is guilty or not. They want to know what the state can prove. Um, I'm a little bit different, I guess, in that respect, because I want to know everything there is to know just again, so I can prepare for it. And I can try to reassure my client that you know, those might be bad facts, but we can deal with it. So to answer your question in a long-winded sort of way, I try to reassure them, try to be a good counselor and, and confidant for them, but also get as much information as I can as early on in the process as I can so that I can start to formulate what our legal defenses are going to be. Yeah, I'm going to talk Garrity. Say again? Which is its own thing. Garrity, are you familiar with that? Tell Lay it on us. All right. So when you've got a public employee, um, the Garrity case is interesting because – uh, in a lot of cases, and I don't know if your paramedics work for the state, but if they do, they would be subject to Garrity. Um, and so Garrity was a case out of New Jersey where a state trooper was being investigated. Uh, he was brought into IA. They told him, look, you either tell us what happened or you're fired immediately. And so, of course, he confessed to whatever he did. And Garrity held that that, that statement could not be used in a um, in, in a criminal proceeding. And the reason for that is um, because you want you know, police officers, when they go to IA to, to tell everything um, so that, you know, that, that, that IA can make decisions accordingly. But the, the downside of that is, okay, once they've divulged all of that to IA, then that cannot be used against them, at least by IA. So usually you have parallel investigations going on. You've got the internal affairs investigation, which is kind of more on the civil side, but then you have a completely separated, separate group that doesn't talk to IA that's doing the criminal investigation themselves. Um, so that, that would be an interesting situation there if your paramedic got told, you know, got a Garrity notice that said, look, you come in and tell us everything that's going on or you're fired, um, you know, uh, they've got to know that that can't then be used against them, but you never know. And I mean, particularly in a high profile case, that might get out to the, the news that, hey, you confessed to doing this. Um, I mean, I don't know how it would get out. Hopefully it wouldn't. Uh, but then, you know, your, your, your case could be torpedoed by that. But, yeah, if you're in this situation, you need to talk to a lawyer because you've got potential, if you work for the government in some way, guarantee issues as well as um, the, uh, the issues that you've got. Now, that doesn't apply to your private employers. I mean, so, you know, if somebody works for a company and the company comes in and says, hey, we need to know what happens or you're fired, that's still going to be discoverable by the police. So um, hmm. Stephen is absolutely right. Uh, yeah, and, and certainly if it's a law enforcement agent who doesn't come in with their Garrity statement in hand, don't talk to them. That's a bad idea. That's uh, what I would like to know is like, at what point should these paramedics have engaged a defense attorney and withdrawn from that investigative process, you know, and stop talking to the police and stop talking to the investigators. Um, I mean, this is, this, this one kind of, I think sideswiped everybody. I, I don't think at any point did these paramedics think that they would ever be charged criminally in this case. So for other paramedics, you know, when, when do you think they should come seek out your, your counsel? Again, this may sound cynical, but I would say immediately. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, I mean, absolutely, I agree that if you're an employee of either the state or the county or privately employed, but you work closely with law enforcement, I'm sure they thought throughout this entire process, there's no way that I'm going to be criminally prosecuted. I'm going to cooperate. Yeah. I'm going to you know, help as much as I can, as I can. I'm going to be forthcoming and truthful and honest. And I'm not you know, saying that there was any ill will on the part of the state during the investigation, but there's just no guarantees. You don't, you can't know for certain that if you cooperate, you know, that there isn't going to be any blowback, that there isn't going to be a, you know, ultimately an indictment coming down or you know, some kind of arrest made. And you have to ultimately look out for yourself and you have to preserve your rights. And I think at the very least, whether you engage counsel or not, you need to at least consult with an attorney, like Chris said, and find out very early on in the process what your rights are and make an informed decision with the advice of counsel about what, if anything, you're going to say to any law enforcement agency. Um, so I think you should at least consult with someone right off the rip. As soon as one of your employees is being questioned 
about something that could become, you know, criminal in nature, then they should absolutely consult with counsel right off the right off the bat, in my opinion. Let me ask you too, and this I'm going to put you guys on the spot a little bit here, but you know, most paramedics are making seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty dollars an hour, uh, barely above minimum wage uh, right now. So, you know, the they're not going to think, hey, I need to go talk to a defense attorney, which could be very expensive for nothing. So it's first time free, you know, it, what does that look like from a, from a poor paramedics perspective? Is this going to be a 400, 500, $1,000 bill just come talk to you? Or what does that, you know, what does that look like? So I can't speak for all attorneys, obviously. I mean, I think that's an attorney to attorney determination, so to speak, but most attorneys, myself included, do charge a consultation fee. Um, mm-hmm. Now that's not, without exception. I mean, there are many times where I waive that consultation fee if it's a friend or if this is something like, obviously, like I said earlier, I worked in prosecution the first three years of my practice, and I was fortunate to develop really good relationships with a lot of people in law enforcement who unfortunately have since had to come to me for legal needs. Um, (laughs) And you want to maintain that relationship for a variety of reasons. So a lot of times in situations like that, and I'll waive that consult fee. So yeah, it just depends on the circumstances. I, I think personally in a situation like this, where you have got someone in a position of public trust and this is a, you know, an interesting case that you know, could become, you know, something that will be very visible, then yeah, I'd probably waive that consultation fee just to try to find out what's going on. And cause it would be fun to potentially get involved in a case like this. Fun might not be the right word, but it would be you know, interesting to get <laughs> interesting, involved. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even if I did charge a consult fee, it would be a lot less than what you just said. I'll say that without getting into numbers, it wouldn't be anything close to four or five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or anything like that. That's good to know. Well, fantastic. And you can ask. You. I mean, you know, oh, when you, I mean, that's that's not a problem. Lawyers don't don't mind that at all. Yeah. You can call up the attorney and say, "Hey, you know, is this going to cost me anything to come see you? Do you have, uh, you know, is my is the initial consult free?" Um, so, I mean, that that doesn't hurt. The other thing is, I, I think back in the day, lawyers used to keep close to the vest what their hourly rate is. And now, I mean, you know, nobody has a problem telling you here's what, I mean, anytime I engage somebody, I, I let them know because frankly, I think my, well, I shouldn't say that out loud that my, my rate is high. Um, but, um, you know, but I, I need them to know ahead of time before they engage me that, hey, look, this is a lot of money. Um, and so I, I if, if you got any problems swallowing that, you need to know now um, yeah. before, we, before we get down that road. But yeah, you can talk with them ahead of time. For sure. So you're not I agree with Steven. I mean, you know, it, look, here's the other thing. I, I think you guys are, are and, and I think you're right to think about this. I don't see this being a trend. I, I, I think this is going to be an unusual case. That's good um, to know. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think Stephen's absolutely right. This is, this is swept up in some of the anti-law enforcement, um, you know, chatter that's going on. I think it would have been difficult to indict the police officers for the ketamine death if you didn't add in the paramedics. And, and that might be what happened here. I don't know. Now, certainly you have to make independent charging decisions ethically based on anyone. But I mean, you know, doctors used to not get indicted for prescribing and then the opioid crisis happened and that became a public health epidemic. And that's why we started indicting doctors. There isn't a public health epidemic of paramedics out there trying to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's this rush out there for folks to, to come down on paramedics. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, you know, but, but that's, I, I don't see the politics going that way. Uh, I don't, who doesn't like a paramedic? All right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I say all the time. I mean, we talk about this in the civil cases about how rarely folks get sued and, and Nick working for a fire-based service is even, you know, even less so because when people think about firemen, they think of, you know, saving kitties saving out of trees and, yeah. Yeah, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you were to look at his services Instagram page, you would see all those kind of pictures up there about, wasn't there one where they put an oxygen mask on a bunny? Yeah, the like bunny, we saved the bunny. Stuff. I mean, it's <laughs> so people don't want to sue um, firemen. They don't want to sue EMS agencies. But, you know, I know the the bad behavior of some police officers has been very visible and other people have gotten swept up in that trend, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you guys think I'm going to ask all three of you, do you think this was politically motivated? Um, I guess we'll start with, uh, let's start with Sam. I mean, I, I think yes, not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, there's, there's things you have to draw attention to. I, 
I don't know that the medics did the right thing in this case. Is dealing with it in a criminal forum the right way to deal with it? No, I don't think so. I think that civil lawsuit, which um, if you guys ever have the chance to sit and read that complaint is just, let me just say it again, a masterpiece of lawyering. Um, yeah. So it, I think it's going to get dealt with there where money's going to get paid and that's how it should be handled. And the agencies should fix their procedures based on that. I don't know that politicians should get involved in deciding what drugs people can use and prescribe on or, you know, use on scene. Um, it seems like when politicians get involved in healthcare decisions, that tends to not be a good thing. So, you know, there is, there is some political motivation to this, in my opinion, is it a good thing? N not necessarily. Chris? Every high profile case is political. Hmm. I mean, I, I can tell you that right off the bat. It, it's yeah. not a decision. I, that doesn't mean that to say that the, you know, the prosecutor who's making the charging decision is thinking, will this get me elected or will this not get me elected? Or at least, at least you hope not. I mean, you've got examples like the Duke lacrosse case from several years ago where that was exactly what he was doing, yeah. was trying to get elected. That guy got disbarred. Um, so, you know, your, your vast majority, but when one of the charging decisions in a high profile case is not so much, is this going to get me elected or is this going to, you know, cause me to lose an election, but more so how is the, what are we saying to the general public by indicting this case? You know, what, what, what's the effect going to be? So it's not so much political in the standpoint of a particular candidate, but more political from the standpoint of public policy. And so, you know, cause I mean, if you bring a case that can have big implications and you lose it, um, man, I mean, I remember the Casey Anthony trial thinking that if I was that prosecutor, they'd, they'd find me three months later on a beach ridiculously sunburned and so hungover you wouldn't be able to believe it because I just lost this huge public trial. Um, you know, so, uh, I mean, it, it's it's there. It's in the back of your mind. I'm not, I'm not saying don't do it, but, you know, it, 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 it certainly gets a lot more scrutiny and a lot more uh, time and brain power and more prosecutors and more law enforcement officers yeah. in a case that's high profile like this. And the other things these guys have to learn, and maybe they'll learn, I mean, I learned it the hard way. I'm not sure if these prosecutors are prepared to deal with it or not, but in a high profile case, there are two cases going on. Um, there's the criminal case, which usually is what the prosecutors are focused on. But there's also the public case. And I, I learned that from going after politicians was, you know, they don't care. They'll go to prison. They've got no problem. I mean, not the paralegals falls into this, but they'll go to prison. No problem. They just they just want to be able to hold their head high and say, I'm being railroaded by this corrupt prosecutor. That's not going to be yeah. the case here. Um, but, yeah, getting back to what I originally said, every high profile case has a political piece to it. Stephen, what do you think? I agree. I mean, I think, honestly, you don't have to look any further than the chronology of the case. As I understand it from what I read, initially the, the, the sitting DA declined to prosecute. Um, and then ultimately, as time went by, there was a special prosecutor appointed, likely due to a lot of political pressure, obviously a product, in my opinion, of, again, current events and you know, the law enforcement issues that we've had in this country over the past year and a half. And so I think there was definitely some political motivation to indict, at the very least, the police officers on um, some political pressure to do that. And, and I agree with Chris wholeheartedly that I think that these paramedics probably just kind of got swept up in that because uh, I don't think yeah. they realistically could have indicted the police officers um, without including the paramedics in that prosecution because the paramedics, obviously it remains to be seen what role they played, but factually they did play a role. There was a drug administered that depending upon which expert you listen to, may or may not have played a role in this guy's death. So I don't think they could have prosecuted the police officers without bringing the paramedics in and, and expected to get even possibly a, 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 a verdict. Um, but at the same time, I think that the prosecution of the police officers was definitely politically motivated. Yeah. Excellent. We're right out of one hour and we always try to wrap up our episode with um, some takeaways uh, it's a great opportunity. I would, I'm going to ask both you from a prosecutor and a defense um, aspect. Can you give the street medics and division chiefs and EMS lawyers like one or two just takeaways that they can take from this case to apply out on the street? Uh, I'm actually going to start with the defense. Sure. I think my biggest takeaway from the paramedics perspective was to try your best to maintain objectivity 
and autonomy in situations like this and not bow in any way to the pressure that might be present from law enforcement in situations like this. Um, It seemed that there may have been some of that going on in this situation. They kind of just took Mm -hmm. at face value what the police officers were telling them without maybe conducting as a thorough investigation and evaluation of, of the uh, victim as they potentially could have. And I think that played a role in this. So I think just the takeaway is remember what your job is. Remember that you're there you know, to ensure the safety of the patient, maintain objectivity as best you can, maintain autonomy in the situation, not necessarily to ignore what the police officers are telling you, obviously, but to ultimately do what your job is, not necessarily what the police officers are telling you you should do. That's an excellent point. Very well put. Prosecution? <laughs> Former. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit just litigator these days. All right. So, uh, but from the prosecution perspective, uh, I will tell you this, follow your training, because uh, that's one of the first things we did when we would look at any police officers. We'd go, we'd get the training manual and we'd compare it against what this particular person did. So if you follow your training, I, I mean, everybody, uh, I, there were riots that occurred when the Rodney King case went down in the you know early 90s. But a big product of that case was, and the reason for the the not guilty verdicts on the police officers was, look, we did exactly what the Los Angeles Police Department had trained us to do. If we identified somebody being under the influence of PCP, the protocol was at that point break bones, and that's that's what we were doing. Um, and so I think you know, I, I mean, obviously that's an extreme case, but if you're a paramedic, and, and use your common sense as well, um, but but follow your training. If you're doing what the protocol says to do you're going to be just fine like i said this is this is an unusual case there isn't a public outcry there aren't protests over paralegals this is probably a one-off i'd be surprised if it ever happened again that doesn't mean you know and and sam probably hates to hear that because on the civil side um you know it's it's a little bit of easier to say hey look guys you got to follow what we told you or else you're going to get arrested Ooh, the boogeyman i'm kidding i don't know if you guys you guys did that but she does um, she does yeah does she all right all right no 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 i mean like yeah you're, you're you're worry more way more about the civil side that's that's where your exposure is I I would be floored if there was, you know, a rash of these that happened across the country. So take a deep breath, follow your training, continue to be great people who save lives. Don't, you know, go off to drive Uber or something because this is scaring you for some reason. We, we need you out there. We need you out there doing your job. Thank you for what you do. And again, if I could have my, my license tag put somewhere in the podcast so that you know that if there's a big wreck to get to my car first, that would be outstanding. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Very much appreciate it. Have I said how much I really enjoy paralegal, uh, paramedics? Not, yeah, paralegals yeah. too, but, but paramedics more so. <laughs> we know what you meant. Sam, I can't top those two takeaways. You got anything else? No, I can't. Other than to, to echo one thing that Stephen said earlier, which is, you know, find a criminal defense attorney that you trust and keep their number in your phone. I have Steven's number in my phone for exactly this reason, just in case. Just in um, case. Because, well, you know, you never know when a lawyer's going to go to jail for something either. So um, it's it's always good to have your resources available to you. Um, that's the one thing I would add to that. That was fantastic. Uh, there may be some unions out there. Like some, yeah. some unions have uh, coverage as well, so you might want to look into that. That's a good point. Yeah. I know the, uh, I know the fire union does. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but yes, absolutely. Uh, I'll wrap us up. I'll take us out of here. You can always find us on Twitter at Nick J Adams one and SRJ attorney. We want to hear from you and, and let us know what we can, uh, ask a pros- former prosecutor and a defense attorney about. <laughs> Tell us about your legal no, issues. Yeah. And, oh, and how to, how to say it's Bob, one of our <laughs> guaranteed listeners. Um, but yeah, let us know what you guys want to hear about. Interesting cases you'd like to discuss and let us know what's in your mind. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks guys. You've been listening to the Standard of Care podcast, a proud member of the Flightbridge Ed podcast network and a Fire Dog production. For more information, go to flightbridgeed.com.